Hi everyone, it's Dr Rachel Savile here and welcome to Memcast. This week we're joined by Dr Rebecca Noble, who's one of our renal registrars in the East Midlands, and we're going to be talking about AKI. Hi Rebecca, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. So could you start today by telling us a bit about what AKI is and how it's classified? Yeah, so acute kidney injury or AKI is um, a sudden, usually reversible loss of kidney function. It's very common and it affects one in five or 20% of hospital inpatients. And people who develop AKI are at a significantly greater risk of both short and longer term adverse consequences. So it's really important that we detect it and manage it well. As I'm sure you know, um, AKI is classified into three stages, one, two and three, with one being the mildest form and stage three being the most severe. And we use creatinine to determine the stage as this is much more sensitive than GFR in the short term, which is why we're so concerned with creatinine when you phone us with AKI referrals. So there's a 2012 KDIGO criteria that is now internationally recognised and accepted and used. Um, stage one is a serum creatinine rise of 1.5 above the baseline. Stage two is a two times rise above baseline. And stage three is a three times rise above baseline or a creatinine of more than 350. So the really important thing there is obviously that we've got a baseline creatinine. If you haven't got a baseline creatinine, trying to find it from alternative hospitals or systems is useful. And if you really haven't got a baseline, then you just have to assume that they have a normal creatinine. Having an AKI is, is really important because there's a 20% risk of mortality associated with having an AKI in hospital. So it's really important that we identify it and treat it early. Yeah, absolutely. And are there specific risk factors that you might look for that might predispose someone to getting an AKI? Yeah, so there's, there's loads of risk factors. And actually, because of that, hospitals often have a risk assessment tool now to help clinicians identify patients at risk of developing AKI if they don't have one on admission. And the risk factors, are the risk factors that you might associate with lots of different hospital conditions, so older age, dehydration or volume depletion, if you've got pre-existing chronic kidney disease, you're more likely to have an acute kidney injury, diabetes type 1 or 2, malignancy is a risk factor for acute kidney injury, sepsis, hypotension, and then so-called nephrotoxic drugs, um, which is a phrase we're trying to move away from because actually there is only a very few drugs, for example gentamicin, that are truly toxic to the kidneys. We commonly think of things like ACE inhibitors and NSAIDs as being nephrotoxic, but that's that's not entirely true. They just exacerbate other insults. So if you use someone with pre-existing CKD as an example, normally in that context, an ACE inhibitor is actually really protective because it reduces proteinuria, it reduces your blood pressure, etc. But if that person becomes unwell with DNV, for example, an ACE inhibitor and the way it acts on the RAS system that becomes detrimental as it prevents your normal physiological response and therefore exacerbates hypoperfusion of the kidneys and makes the problem worse. So that's why those drugs are so important in the context of AKI, but that's also why we shouldn't be saying that they're toxic because I think that promotes people's misunderstanding of their renoprotective role in health. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. So if you're on your acute take and you've got a patient that presents with an AKI or, or on the ward and they're developing an AKI, what would you recommend the first steps of your investigation to be? So I think initially the most important thing to think about is what's causing this, what's driving this. 
And I tend to think, is this a kidney first problem or a kidney second problem? More often than not, it's a kidney second problem. In, in other words, AKI is being caused by something else that's happening in the body. Common things are common. So think about fluid status, are they hypovolemic or hypervolemic? And for both of these things, you need to think about what's driving that. So for hypervolemia, are they septic? Have they got gastroenteritis? Has there been excessive blood loss? Is there fluid in the wrong compartment? So for liver patients, for example. And then basic fluid assessment, looking at blood pressure, heart rate, listening to your chest, assessing for pedal edema, trying to see the JVP. That's all the basics of starting to think about what's causing an AKI. So it's an, it's an A to E assessment, essentially. And then the other thing that's really important is looking at input and output. Obviously, initially, when someone comes through the door, you probably don't have a good, reliable idea of how much someone's taking in. They might have told you they're not, not eating and drinking so well, but it's quite difficult to quantify that. But it's really, really important to establish whether someone's passing urine. And there's two reasons for that, really. Firstly, it might change the urgency of your management. So if someone's hyperkalemic and anuric, that might expedite a decision to dialysis. But secondly, if someone's in urinary obstruction and that's the cause of their AKI, their management's going to be completely different to someone that's hypovolemic. You're going to want to catheterize that patient and perhaps think about a urology review rather than giving them lots of fluids and antibiotics. And then the next thing to think about is, are they on any medication that might have exacerbated the problem? So we've already talked about ACE inhibitors, NSAIDs, diuretics, any other hypertensives that's making their blood pressure low and then causing an underperfusion of their kidneys. Are there any new drugs, things like PPIs, could cause interstitial nephritis? Could that be a cause of their AKI? And then the other thing to think about when you're talking about drugs is are they on anything that might accumulate as a result of an AKI, which then might cause harm? So the common thing that we look for is things like opiates. So if you kind of imagine an, an older lady who's perhaps come in with a pneumonia and an AKI that's on an ACE inhibitor, but also has back pain and she's on some codeine for that it'd be very easy not to spot the fact that she's on quite a big dose of codeine, which normally she's fine with, but in the context of her AKI, that might accumulate and make her drowsy, make her very constipated, for example. So just basic, so fluid assessment, cause, think about the impact of medication, are they passing urine? And then you can look at their UNEs, their bicarb, their urine dip, and an ultrasound to exclude hydronephrosis. And then are there any other more specialised tests that we might do to investigate someone with a more serious AKI? Yeah, so if a patient's got AKI 2 or 3, or there's a an, an suspicion of an intrinsic renal problem, that's when we suggest what we call an acute screen or a GN screen. And we look for things like myeloma, vasculitis, SLE, anti-GBM disease. And although those conditions aren't very common, they often present with an acute kidney injury and so it's really important to keep those in mind and especially if your patient isn't fitting into the usual picture of someone that's septic with an AKI for example or DMV with an AKI if they don't fit that mold thinking outside the box and thinking whether there's something more unusual that it could be is, is really important. Brilliant so um, when would you do a biopsy or what and what workup would you do for somebody requiring a biopsy? So in the emergency setting, we, we don't do a lot of kidney biopsies. The main reason we do a, a renal biopsy is to look for vasculitis, anti-GBM or an interstitial nephritis. So basically anyone with an acute kidney injury 
that's unexplained or someone with an AKI with positive antibodies. And in that context, in someone, for example, with ankle-associated vasculitis, they'll have had hemoproteinuria on a dip, they'll have had a positive PR3 or MPO antibody, and we'll probably have already started them on immunosuppression with steroids, but we know that the next step in their treatment is going to be something like cyclophosphamide, so very heavy-duty medication. So we need to be sure of the diagnosis before we treat them any further. So in terms of the work for a biopsy, it's essentially the same as an AKI assessment. So we want blood, urine dip, ultrasound, and because before you biopsy someone, you need to know that they've got two kidneys and that they're normal-sized kidneys. And the reason for that is because the main complication of a kidney biopsy is bleeding. The kidney is very, very vascular. We use an ultrasound machine when we're doing the biopsies, but obviously we can't see microvessels. And so we have to make sure that the clotting is normal beforehand. They have to have been off antiplatelet drugs. The numbers that we quote to patients, so one in 10 patients will have visible hematuria after a biopsy. One in 100 will need to have some imaging after their biopsy because either their blood pressure's dropped or their haemoglobin's dropped. And there's that suspicion of bleeding there. And a hematoma after biopsy is actually very common. And so we're not reassured by a hematoma on imaging, but that explains a drop and that's okay. For some patients, that hematoma might be representative of active bleeding requiring embolization. So that's in a much smaller population. But because that is quite a serious complication, we take hematuria very seriously in order to spot the patient that's actually actively bleeding. Very, very rarely it's possible that the bleeding is so extensive that the patient needs an nephrectomy, which is why it's so important that they've got two kidneys. And very, very, very rarely patients can die from having a kidney biopsy. Mm. So you mentioned earlier about thinking whether it's kidney first or kidney second. You can also classify AKI causes into a kind of pre-renal, renal and post-renal causes. Could you just talk us through some common examples of each of those, please? Yeah, so this is the sort of classic way that we've described AKI, and it's what we've learned in medical school. It's, it's a useful way of looking at things. So pre-renal, so that's about a problem with the volume status, essentially, so hypoperfusion of your kidneys. And there's a number of different reasons that that can happen. So hypovolemia, sepsis, dehydration, gastroenteritis, less common things like bleeding. So someone that has a a large hemorrhage can go into acute kidney injury because there's blood loss. So that's classic pre-renal. And I would put heart failure into that category as well. So that's a volume problem. You're not perfusing your kidneys well. The fluid's in the wrong place. In terms of renal, that's things like glomerular disease, interstitial nephritis. I tend to think of acute tubular necrosis as being a bit of a hybrid between pre-renal and renal. ATN can be caused by nephrotoxic drugs like gentamicin, for example, but can also happen as a result of profound dehydration and hypotension, which is where that link to pre-renal comes in. So you can have a pre-renal AKI that then causes an acute tubular necrosis. And then post-renal causes are arguably the more straightforward. So that's your obstruction, your stones, urinary retention. And usually that's something that we would ask the urologists for help with in treating. Mm-hmm. And how would you manage your patients with an AKI? 
So uh, the way that I think of it is all just about doing the basics well. So think about the cause, think about medications, think about fluid status. And if things aren't adding up or aren't improving, it's about revisiting your original assessment, thinking about an intrinsic renal problem. So thinking about sending an acute screen and then send the tests and continue to get the basics right. After you've sent your anchor and your ANA and your complement, making sure that they remain uvolemic, making sure that their medication chart is inappropriate, that they've got an accurate input-output chart, which is a lot easier said than done, that they haven't gone into urinary retention, that their drug chart doesn't have anything on it that might accumulate in the context of an acute kidney injury. And I guess the other thing is that if someone's developing an AKI in hospital, so what's changed? What's the new insult? And if in doubt, ask. So we generally want to know about AKI 3, definitely, and, and some AKI 2s, and you'll never be criticised for asking for a renal opinion. If nothing else, we've got a wealth of other resources that we have access to, like renal drug database, for example, that can help with medication changes. And we'd much rather know about these patients early so that we can get involved in them earlier and be involved in their care. Mm-hmm. OK, so when would you get to a point where you'd be considering dialysis with a patient with AKI? Um, so this is a really hot topic at the moment. So the most common reason for acute dialysis, especially in the middle of the night, is refractory hyperkalemia. And I think that's the one that everyone is scared of and understandably so. So potassium above 6.5 with ECG changes or above 7 with or without ECG changes that hasn't responded to medical management, you need to start thinking about renal replacement therapy. And I think that's the last bit of that is really important. So medical management of hyperkalemia should always include treatment of the underlying problem. So if someone's got potassium of 8 but is in obstruction, no amount of insulin dextrose is going to make that patient better. That just buys you time whilst you sort out the underlying issue. So constantly thinking about the basics and what's the cause and what's driving this whilst you're doing your emergency treatment is really important. And then the other kind of hard indications for dialysis are uremia, so encephalopathy, um, which can be quite difficult to, to spot. The patients are often quite delirious and confused and agitated. Pericardial rub, which is one of those things that when you've heard one, you'll never forget that, but it's quite difficult to pick it up until you know what you're listening for. Refractory hypervolemia, so patients who are in heart failure, but they are on maximum loads of diuretics and they're still gaining weight and not passing enough urine. And then less commonly metabolic acidosis, but it very much depends on the cause of that. And as, as I said, the, the timing of starting renal replacement therapy is a really hot topic at the moment. So there's, very recently, there's been a trial called STAR-AKI, um, which is looking at what the outcomes are for patients who are dialysed early and those who are held for a bit longer. And that trial showed that actually there should be a hard indication for dialysis. So the reason for dialysis shouldn't just be responding to a creatinine of a certain number or a creatinine rise of a certain number. It should be about dialysing someone for hyperkalemia, uremia, hypervolemia, and their outcomes for those patients are better. 
So we've talked quite a bit there about AKI management in the acute setting. When you're following these patients up in clinic, what sort of things are you looking at and what are their future risks? So follow-up of AKI is a big area of interest for me and it's what I'm hoping to do some research around. Um, And the reason for that is because there's a massive gap in the provision of post-AKI follow-up care. So the international guidance is that anyone with an AKI should have a UNE and an albumin creatinine ratio at 90 days. And we know that in reality, less than half of patients with the most severe form of AKI or stage of AKI see a nephrologist after they're discharged. And another really important gap is about patient education as well. So 80% of patients with AKI 2 or 3 may not even know they've had an acute kidney injury in hospital. And so there's a, a huge amount of work to be done there. So to answer your question, at the moment, the mainstay of AKI follow-up is almost a bit like the initial assessment in reverse. So it's about tying up the loose ends, ensuring the diagnosis was correct, that there's nothing outstanding, and then thinking about modifying risk factors. So, for example, having a plan for the reintroduction of an ACE inhibitor if it's appropriate. And if the patient needs to be on an ACE inhibitor long term, but their renal function hasn't recovered or they haven't had an adequate break off it what's the alternative strategy for blood pressure control in the interim and then educating the patients about acute kidney injury and things like sick day rules so explaining that medication that they're normally on good for them can actually exacerbate problems if they're unwell and therefore if they have an episode of gastroenteritis for example actually not taking their blood pressure tablets on that day mm-hmm. and that has a, a huge potential to prevent admissions and lower AKI severity in the long term so AKI follow-up is about sort of modification of risk factors and, and prevention of developing CKD ideally. Mm-hmm. So what is their risk of developing CKD after an AKI? If you've had an AKI, your your risk of developing chronic kidney disease or CKD in the future is three times higher than if you hadn't had an AKI. And that's really important. Um, And it's one of the reasons that prevention of AKI, identification of AKI and also follow up of AKI is so important. There's some other really important long term risk factors as well. So it's an independent risk factor for an increased risk of mortality. You have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. You have an increased risk of recurrent acute kidney injuries, which is also another risk factor for development of CKD in the long term. And chronic kidney disease has a huge impact on patients and on the healthcare system overall. One in, one in 10 patients have chronic kidney disease. And as you know, as chronic kidney disease progresses, patients need renal replacement therapy with things like dialysis or transplantation. So it's a really important that we work towards finding who is at risk of developing CKD after an AKI and identifying that cohort of patients. Mm, absolutely. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today, Becca. That's okay. And thanks everyone for listening and joining us for this week's Memcast. We'll see you again next week.